Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast. As promised, there is a brand new release in the Christian Heritage series, George Herbert's The Temple, with a fantastic foreword from John Piper. Although he was a pastor of a small, remote church in Elizabethan England, George Herbert came to fame because of a small collection of poems called The Temple. In this short but beautiful collection of poetry, Herbert devised 116 new poetic forms to capture his experience of awe, sorrow, glory, turmoil, repentance, and heart-rending joy. All of it dedicated to God, not man. In this book, we have a picture of the full range of human experience and emotion, felt by a man being sanctified by God and describing it with all his poetic powers. Get George Herbert's The Temple with a foreword from John Piper today at canonpress.com. Podcast episode 146. Can you believe it? 146. Just amazing. Let's talk about something that's not been in the news, but what has been in the news is directly related to this. I want to um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, developing a theology, or as the scholars would say, toward a theology of making yourself scarce, toward a theology of exiting. A toward a theology of um, beating it. So, what do I mean? Uh, one of the things I think that we're going to see in the uh, probably in the next year, maybe two years, is a massive relocation of Americans um, from one part of the country, basically from blue states to red states. I, I believe that there's going to be a massive refugee column, and there's, this is going to be an enormous practical problem for the states that are losing people. It's also going to be a headache, a different kind of practical problem, but more of a beneficial one for the receiving states. So I just read something uh, uh, today that Idaho is uh, the number one state when it comes to incoming traffic. Um, and that's, that, that is not taking into account all of the COVID nonsense and the, um, the rioting and just everything. So what is, uh, what's going to happen is, uh, is this. I think a number of people have been toying with the idea of getting the heck out of California or, man, I, I don't know that I want to bring up my kids in Illinois. I, I, you know, the, the taxes are so high and the uh, governmental corruption is um, uh, massive um, and they annoy me all the time with their petty regulations. I think we should think about this. And, but as Newton taught us, uh, an object at rest tends to stay at rest, right? Uh, inertia is a thing. What has happened uh, in this, um, in the last four months, is a series of events that I think is uh, calculated to make a lot of people think 
that I can't survive another one of these. You, you know, I can't survive uh, another, my small business can't survive if I have to shut down for two or three months again. Uh, and then once I start opening up and people start rioting and the police stand down and don't do anything to protect my property, I think I need to get out of here. Um, I, I'm going to go. I'm going to pick them up and put them down. So, what's the theology of that? In the Reformation, um, the Reformers talked about, basically, they developed a theology of resistance. Um, and this had to do with tyranny and persecutions and, and so on. But we are getting uh, pretty close to that if we're not there already. The Reformers said there's basically three stages. Uh, the first is you prophesy against the abuse. You preach and you teach and you testify and you do what you can to bring about uh, a reformation. So there's a, a prophetic denunciation, hopefully from the pulpit, but also hopefully from other places other than the pulpit. So there's a, there's a prophetic opposition to the abuse. The second thing um, they said was uh, to flee, to run away, get on a ship to America, <laughs> uh, flee the king. And Jesus says to do this. If you're, Jesus says explicitly, if you're persecuted in one city, um, flee to the next. There is nothing ungodly about running. Nothing ungodly about running, whether spiritual or physical. Paul tells Timothy to flee youthful lusts. Jesus says that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, uh, you should be able to remember what he said and head for the tall grass. You need to get out of there. Um, Head for the hills. Pray that your flight not be on the Sabbath when all the gas stations are closed. Uh, don't, uh, don't hesitate to get out of there. Uh, so when, when you're persecuted or when things get hot, there's no problem at all with uh, Christians scattering, finding a place where they can bring up their children in peace, finding a place where they can work quietly with their hands and, and do what God has called them to do. Then the third stage was um, the use of defensive arms only. Uh, so if, they, if the bad guys don't let you run away, if they chase you down, uh, try to track you down, and they finally get you to the back, with your back to the wall, you may take up arms to defend yourself and your family, but you may never, uh, do, you may ne you may never uh, undertake revolutionary attempts. In other words, uh, you're not trying to overthrow the government. You're just trying to uh, have them leave you alone. So that's the threefold theology. Number one, testify against it, prophesy against the abuse. Number two, run. And number three, uh, defend yourself. Uh, and it might come down to a, a last stand, but you do what you have to do. Now, the question is whether or not we are at that second stage. Yes, there's been a generation or more of um, Christians testifying against the abuses that have been consistently mounting up. And given the fact that it is, um, going, it is rapidly going to become impossible to function as a conscientious Christian in this, um, in this sort of environment, particularly if you're in a blue state where the, uh, the governors are going to seize on things like the, the recent Supreme Court decision on um, gay and lesbian uh, stuff. 
so then, I think that uh, Christians who are seriously thinking about relocating um, and they want to move to a state that is far more friendly as, as opposed to, uh, well, they want to move from a state where the governors and the local authorities are likely to take overreaches by the recent Supreme Court decision uh, and they're likely to apply it to their own ends, as opposed to red state governments and legislatures that are likely to resist it and are uh, more likely to resist it if there are a large number of people uh, coming into their states eager for them to resist it. So there you go. We come now to our hamartiology section. You remember that's the study of sin. We're looking at all the Greek words for various sins in the New Testament. As we continue our study of hamartiology, our word for this session is althades, althades, A-U-T-H-A-D-E-S, and it's translated as self-willed. We would describe it as headstrong or mulish. A Christian leader must not be this way. Titus 1, 7-9 says, For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed. There it is. Not self-willed. Not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Now, as is the case with so many of these sins, we can pick up something of their nature from the company they hang out with. The unqualified minister is one who is oriented to himself. He's oriented to himself. He's in it for him. He gets angry because he was crossed. He drinks too much because he likes how it feels. He strikes at others because someone hurt him. And the same thing applies when he makes a decision. He wants it to go his way. He's self-willed. He does not work well under authority. Men who are self-willed frequently have very strong views of authority when it comes to the people who are under his authority, and very weak views of authority when it comes to people over him. This comes out in the other place in the New Testament where this Athades sin is named. That's in 2 Peter 2, uh, 10-12. But chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, Presumptuous are they, self-willed, there we are, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord, but these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. So, these people are self-willed, and they taunt or, or make fun of uh, spiritual authorities. This kind of man despises authority above him. And Peter also makes the point of saying that he does not even understand the authority above him. Uh, We are told in Scripture that the archangel Michael, in the dispute over the body of Moses, did not rebuke the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And so it doesn't help it. It doesn't help if you are taunting celestial principalities and powers far above you who are wicked. I remember vividly uh, coming home from Sunday school, Southern Baptist Sunday school, when I was a little kid, uh, and there was a song, I've got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart, and there was a verse that they taught us, if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. <laughs> and uh, 
So we brought that song home from Sunday school, and my father uh, took us aside and said, no, you don't sing that way about the devil, even though he's bad. You, you don't revile authorities. So this kind of man despises authority above him, and Peter makes the point of saying he doesn't even understand the nature of authority above him. He's like a brute beast, and making my earlier use of the word mulish a fitting, a fitting description. This is our book review section for the podcast, episode 146. Now, I've got, for you bookworms, or for the wives, long-suffering wives of you bookworms, I've got, um, I've got good news for you, because I'm going to review a book here that I'm going to encourage you not to get. And if you have it, I don't think you need to read it. I got it in order to review it on my blog, chapter by chapter, and I stalled out about halfway through. And then because I was halfway through, I thought I might as well um, finish reading it, which I did. And the book in question is Beyond Authority and Submission by Rachel Miller. Beyond Authority and Submission by Rachel Miller. The thing that's astonishing about this book, it's astonishing that it got into print. There, there are a number of good things sprinkled throughout because she's, she says she's not an egalitarian or a complementarian. Uh, she's talking about gender roles. She's talking about uh, she wants to go beyond authority and submission. But nowhere in the book does she describe uh, the actual mechanics or the day-to-day uh, dealings of men and women in families. Uh, she'll give us all sorts of bromides, like uh, mutual love and respect and caring, you know, all of that stuff. But it doesn't tell you at all how you're supposed to behave, what you're supposed to do, who does what. There's, there's none of that. And so to the extent that she talks, to the extent that she says good things, and she says a number of good things, they're general, they're, they're, they're um, cliched, they're hackneyed. Um, so it's not, there's nothing really new uh, there. Uh, and then when you get to her, her thesis, the thesis of this book, it's just um, laughable. Uh, her argument is that the ancient Greeks and Romans took a dim view of women. They had a dim view of women. And then the, the, uh, this dim view of women that, that was cultivated or pioneered by the Greeks and Romans was then resurrected by the Victorians. And then Christians, conservative Christians today, read complementarian types. Um, conservative Christians today got their recycled Greek and Roman ideals about male and female relations that were um, picked up by the Victorians, and we inherited them from the Victorians. So her thesis is Christian, conservative Christians who have strong views of authority and submission in the home, the kind of authority and submission that she wants us to get beyond, um, are basically uh, not scriptural at all, but we are simply trafficking in old pagan uh, stereotypes that the Victorians sort of updated, modernized, and put into play for us. She asserts this a number of times. She alludes to it a number of times. That's her story, and she's sticking to it. That's her thesis. Um, but she just she doesn't prove her thesis. She doesn't demonstrate it at all. She just asserts it. Now she. Uh, she establishes, you know, she'll, she'll quote different Greeks and Romans who had a low view of women, but in order for her thesis to work, she has to show that the intervening period between 
the Greeks and the Victorian, the Greeks Romans on the one hand and the Victorians on the other, was a um, sort of a millennial period for women, a golden age for women. Not only that, she has to show that prior to the Greeks and Romans, that uh, things were great for women back then before the Greeks and Romans. I just, I am honestly mystified at how this thing got into print. I don't know who edited it. I don't know who okayed it. I don't know what the editorial meetings must have looked like where they, where they okayed it. Um, the, the central thesis of this book is gobsmackingly bad. And then it's surrounded by nice cliches and hand-waving that doesn't really get us anywhere. So basically, if, if you listen to this podcast in order to find out a, a book that you think you, think you ought to buy, um, I'm going to let you down this time. Thank you.